Today's gospel reading comes from John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15, and can be found on page 1059 of the Pew Bible. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the Gospel of the Lord. morning. My name is Sam. For those who don't know me, I'm an assistant pastor here. Okay. You guys can hear me? All right, great. I'm an assistant pastor here. Um, we've been going through the book of John um, with a little hiatus for Advent, but we're, we're back. Um, Mike led us to the end of um, chapter 5 in John last week. And this week we're looking at John 6 and the feeding of the 5,000. This is a story probably everybody in here has heard before. Um, it's in all, five, all four of the Gospels. Um, and it's a story that's, you know, it's, it's told in each of the Gospels pretty similarly. There's some details in some that aren't in others, but um, it's a, it kind of paints a holistic story between the four Gospels. So we'll kind of be, um, I'll, I'll kind of be referencing all four of those. And as we were talking about, that this week we have a little kind of sermon meeting at the end of the, at the beginning of the week and um, we we all just kind of agreed that it really seems like a very like bam there it is like it's it's pretty straightforward right it's it's a um, it's a miracle Jesus does it it's like I said in all four of the gospels and it's just kind of like it happens and it's it's there pretty upfront but I also think that the story touches on a lot of um, a lot from the Old Testament, and it touches on 
Um, it, it goes back um, farther. It goes to Moses. There's a lot of um, references to uh, the Exodus story in here. And it goes back even farther than that to Adam and Eve. And that's what we're kind of going to kind of look at and focus on today. So read with me. It'll be really helpful if you do that. Um, we're in John 6. Uh, there's the um, page number uh, 1059 um, in your pew Bibles. So we'll start in verse 1. After this, so that's after what um, our Pastor Mike preached on last week with the Jewish leaders accusing Jesus and Je- <clears throat> Jesus giving these witnesses, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. So this is actually kind of an interesting statement. I didn't know anything about this before I um, kind of uh, was doing research on this this week. So there's some geographical stuff about this, but basically um, the common name around Jesus' time of this sea was the Sea of Galilee. But around the time that John was writing his gospel towards the end of his life, it started to become known as the Sea of Tiberias. So it's kind of like how you know the, the highway here in St. Louis used to be 40, but now it's I-64 because it got integrated with the highway system. So some local Missourians, um, mostly older Missourians probably, call it 40 or more likely Farty, right? Called Farty. Um, But most people say 64, or if you want to include both, 64-40. And that's the way that John goes here. He says both names and I don't know. I mean, that seems kind of like kind of a, a random fact um, that doesn't really pertain to the text. But I, I want to note here, especially if you're here and you're coming to church and either you're not exactly sure what you believe about Jesus or you're, you know, you're, you're coming here and you're, you're kind of interested. But these kind of crazy miracles where Jesus kind of just randomly comes up with um, enough bread and fish to feed 5,000 people. If you're struggling with that, I think this does have something to, to say to you. Because John takes pains, as the other Gospels do, to place this event in history, in a real place, at a real time. And that's what, the, you know, including both of those names shows us. When you read myths or hear legends, it doesn't usually start off, you know, or it usually starts off something like, once upon a time in a land far, far away... Not when Kyle got off of 64 Farty at Hampton. It, it's, it's grounding this in history and time. And you have to do something with that. You have to wrestle with that. This is one of Jesus' most public miracles. So it says 5,000 men, but of course that's not including the women and children. There's a boy, you know, obviously there that um, gave them the five loaves and two fish. So most commentators put this somewhere between 12,000 and 20,000 people. He did this in public. Jesus was not um, over here hiding all of these miracles. He wanted to be seen. And all four gospel writers wrote these gospels when thousands of people would have still been alive that may have seen this, lived in this area. So when they're picking up this letter of John, they could go, oh, hey, you were, you were over by the Sea of Tiberias then, weren't you? Did you see this? Did you hear about that? So you can do what some have done and kind of try to explain it away. My personal favorite theory um, on kind of explaining this miracle away is the cave bucket theory where they hid a bunch of bread and fish in a cave and then they had like a little, um, what do you call that, like a fireman uh, system, a a cave, um, cave bucket 
bucket passing line where one person passed to the other, and then, you know, there's Jesus in front of everybody, and he kind of just came up with, with all that. Sounds kind of ridiculous to me, but I, I think that's a challenge. I think that's a challenge to see what actually happened here. In the last few years, there's been a growing amount of people believing in a bunch of wide-ranging conspiracy theories. And um, I've talked to a lot of these people, family members, friends, and the best way I've found to talk about it with them is diving into the details. Okay, so what, what, what would it actually take for this to have been faked, for this to have been happened, for this conspiracy to be true? What would that actually take? Was it realistic? Was it possible? I challenge you to do that with this story. I'd argue that this is a true story, and it's one that Jesus and his gospel writers, under the superintending work of the Holy Spirit, really wanted us to hear. So let's keep going. Verse 2. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to only get a little. You want, you want to feed them bread, Jesus? Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. Denarii is worth a day's wages. And since Jews didn't work on Sabbaths or holy days, this would have almost been two-thirds of a year's salary. I'd have to work for years to pay that off, Jesus. One of his disciples, Andrew, continuing in verse 8, Simon Peter's brother said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. So let's dig into that a little bit here. Why does Jesus do this? Why does, Je why does Jesus do this? To answer that, I want to ask another question, a little bit more general. Why does Jesus do miracles at all? Like, what's the purpose of miracles? And there's, I think there's at least a couple interconnected reasons that Jesus does miracles. We see him doing miracles all the time in the Gospels. One is his compassion on people. The um, Gospel of Mark, talking about this story, said that Jesus, when Jesus saw the crowd, he had compassion on them. He said they were like a sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus, Jesus' compassion, meeting a felt need of the people in a broken situation. That's one reason that Jesus does miracles. The second reason Jesus does miracles is because they're signs. That's what John actually calls them. He calls them signs, pointing to the reality of who he is. But let's talk about that part a little bit more. Because miracles are signs pointing to the reality of Jesus as the Messiah, who fulfills the Old Testament, who fulfills the Old Covenant, who meets the Old Covenant prophecies, and who is the second Adam who reverses the curse of the fall. Think about it. The curse, what did the curse bring into the world? The curse brought sin and sickness into the world. Jesus heals sickness and disease and birth defects. That's a lot of what he does in these miracles. Think of um, men who were born blind being able to see, men who were paralytic being able to walk. In Genesis 3, um, God, when he's you know, 
explaining this curse that came from Adam and Eve's sin in the fall, says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to Satan, the snake. And so the curse also brought us a degree of demonic, satanic authority and oppression against us. So what does Jesus do? He reverses the curse and he drives out the demons. And the chief part of the curse that the fall brought is death. If you eat the tree, you'll die. And so Jesus raises Jairus' daughter, and he raises Lazarus from the dead, like we'll see later in, the, in John. And these are signs, they're announcements that the kingdom is here, that Jesus is reworking the fall. He's reversing the fall. He's breaking the effects of the curse that the second Adam brought us. So what was the broken situation? So having said that, that that's one of the purposes of miracles, is for Jesus to show that he's the second Adam reversing the effects of the curse that the first Adam brought us, what does that show us about this passage? I mean, really, compared to Jesus' other miracles, reversing the curse of disease and defects and driving out demons and raising people from the dead, this was pretty low stakes. It was a pretty low stakes problem to be solved. I mean, for real, Jesus could have just said, you know, guys, I know that you're, you were following me, you want to hang out with me, but it's getting late. And I'm not doing any more teaching today, so go home and make dinner or go into the city and we'll come back tomorrow. See you tomorrow. The problem here is kind of in the same category as the first sign, the first miracle that we saw Jesus do in John, which was the wedding at Cana, where Jesus changed the water into wine just for the sake of the party keeping going and to avoid embarrassment, to um, keep the host from embarrassment. It's low, kind of low stakes. I mean, the problem here was the problem of hunger and lack of food interrupting and inconveniencing their plans to spend time with Jesus. They had been walking for miles. They traced a route along the side of the sea, and so they were hungry. But this wasn't like a starvation mode hunger. It was kind of like the hunger from, you know, you're driving home at 5.15 and your tummy starts to grumble. That's the kind of hunger we're talking about here. It's not starvation. So was this really a miracle? Was this, was this miracle really a sign of Jesus reversing the curse, the effects of the curse in the fall? And I'd argue, yeah. If I can jump to Genesis 3 for a second, listen to the curse as given to Adam. And to Adam he said... Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Because of that, so, so remember, first of all, in the garden, Adam, Adam and Eve had it made in the shade. Food was easy. It was accessible. I mean, yeah, they, they did work. They did work in the garden, but the work was humanizing, productive, fruit-bearing work that could give, give them ownership and dominion. But God said, yeah, eat anything around here. It's yours. Eat of any tree in here but not that one. And instead of the ease of eating anything else, they ate from that one. And so continuing in Genesis 3, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field, and listen to this part, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Bread was a part of the curse. Now does this part of the curse, you know, are, are there... Many degrees of things worse that this part of the curse brings us. Of course there are. But this part of the curse, this aspect of the curse that um, came with the fall, makes bread hard. It frustrates work. 
It makes work something that's toiling, backbreaking, with a lifetime full of inconveniences and frustrations and sweat. That's, the, that's now the cost of survival in our world. So I hope when you hear, heard me comparing the problem with the others that Jesus faces when he does these miracles, you didn't hear me dismiss their problem. They had just walked miles. They were planning on seeing Jesus. And maybe he was a little bit farther than they thought. They walked a little bit farther than they thought they would have to, and now it's getting late, and they're tired, and they're hungry. And as Mark says, in that moment is when Jesus had compassion on them. So let's talk about us. Because that's something that, that's a, that's a part of the curse that affects you literally every day of your life. For me, when I have a bad day, something I'd call a bad day, looking back, one of my favorite adjectives to use when I'm talking to people about this is frustration. I feel frustrated. One thing after another, just not, not going right. It's not one, you know, just one cataclysmic tragedy, life-altering hurt. It's a lot of little inconveniences, many hardships, comparatively small frustrations that just kind of build up one upon another. You know what I'm talking about? I remember there was one time in when I was studying in seminary, I was at home at the time, and I just had like the sweetest time with the Lord. Like I, you know, was reading scripture and I was journaling everything and I just, you know, had all of the, you know, all of the feelings and um, felt renewed by the gospel. And then I went out to my car to drive to the seminary and I was getting in my car and I just whacked my head. <laughs> and then after that, everything was terrible. And I think our lives are just filled with tons of stuff that are similar to that. In the middle of those frustrations, you know, they aren't, you know, we can share, give plenty of examples of those. But when those are happening to you, you know, in the frustrations of your day, they aren't trite, they're not funny, they're not cute sitcom moments. They can feel really big. What does this look like for you? How about in the past week? What's frustrated you? What's agitated you? What's inconvenienced you? What's messed with your plans? We all complain about the traffic. It's an easy one. But there's, there's tons of stuff like this. Kids not listening. Workplace strife. Computers not working. Technology in general, right? Losing your keys. Burning dinner. Tons of this stuff. How did you react to that? How did you react to that aspect of the fall? Of all of these things that are brought on by the frustrations of the fall. And of the curse of the fall. I think of a lot of times we can get a little angry or sad or whatever, and that can just kind of start piling up into bitterness and escapism and victim mentalities. And I don't think we talk about this a lot. I think in church we're actually pretty good about, we talk about suffering, we, we talk about trials, we talk about things that feel really big, but what about all those, what about all those hundreds of small things that frustrate you, that agitate you, that annoy you? Think of the Philip Yancey book, uh, where, where is, it's titled, Where is God When It Hurts? And that's a great question. We need to ask that. That's big. But we also need to ask, because it's a, it affects us every day, where is God when it's annoying? Where is God when it's frustrating? Where is, where is God when I'm agitated and I'm feeling the effects of not this huge thing, but all of these little things of living in a fallen world? When we look at this story, though, I think we can see three things that give us direction on what to do. What, what do we do when our days are frustrating? What do we do when we're frustrated, agitated, inconvenienced? 
So this story, this miracle, this sign that Jesus does, um, gives us three truths of what Jesus breaking the bread here does. One, it shows the Father's heart. Jesus says, in another place, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So when Jesus sees these people that are just kind of a little tired, a little hungry, coming to him, he's compassionate on them. He sees us and he has compassion. Stop and remind yourself of that. If you're, if you're in that mode where your day is just, you know, man, it's one thing after another, remind yourself, God is here. There's a Latin phrase, quorum Deo, means before the face of the Lord. That it, it, it refers to the fact that our lives are lived, not just part of our lives, not just our Sunday morning lives, or prayer group lives, or, you know, when we're reading the Bible lives, but all of our lives are lived before the face of the Lord. Stop and remind yourself of that. When you are getting frustrated, when you're getting agitated, when life is not working out for you in the moment, in the little things, building up one upon another, God sees you. God sees you. This is a part of his world. When I was in seminary, one of my professors told me to circle every time that the word, the, the Greek is tapanta, means all things. Circle every time all things comes up in the New Testament. Because it's Jesus is Lord over all things. Abraham Kuyper said, there's not one square inch in all of creation over which Jesus does not cry, mine. So I want to I apply that to your own life, to your inconveniences, to your frustrations, to your agitations. God is with you in the small things. He is with you in the small things. And he has compassion on you even in these small things. Sometimes I think, man, God is, and I probably wouldn't say this out loud, right? But I think I have the tendency, and maybe you have the tendency to think, there's wars going on. There's people that are suffering for real. There's people that are starving for real. And I'm just over here and I'm sitting in traffic and I'm getting mad. Or I'm trying to do this thing at work and I'm just, my kids are not listening to me. And I want, I want to, God is big enough for both of those things. God is big enough to see you in that moment, to be with you in that moment. So that's the first thing that I think this tells us. Stop and remind yourself you are seen by the Lord who has compassion on you. Second, I think this says that God provides in, in the small things, even in the small things, God provides what we need. So I'm not saying that that means that, you know, next time you run out of gas on the road that it's going to start raining Teslas or that, you know, something as crazy as this is going to happen. But Jesus tells us in Matthew 6 God cares for the birds, for the field. He cares for the lilies. How much more will he care for the things that you need? In another place, he says that God knows the number of hairs that are on your head. That's small. That's a really crazy small detail about you, isn't it? But God knows it. God cares. Nothing can happen to you without running, first running through the good intentions of a good God. God provides for what, what you need. And so I think, even if it's small, I'm not saying, I, I think we can over-spiritualize things sometimes, like, you know, having car problems, and, you know, I'm not saying you need in, to take three hours to pray over that. 
But what would it look like if instead of these agitations, these inconveniences, like these people who are coming to Jesus and they're hungry and they're tired and they don't have easy access to bread and fish, what would it look like if instead of getting mad, getting bitter, getting flustered, and then just trying to move on with your day somehow. What would it look like if you remembered God was with you, you remembered he had compassion on you, and you just said a little prayer? Hey, God, I see you. I know you're here with me. Would you please help me out in whatever way that looks like? Might not be the way, I think, but help me, Lord. How much different might your life look like? Number three, Jesus breaking bread here is a sign pointing to the greater bread, the bread of life. Jesus explains um, pretty clearly in this passage later in John 6 that Mike's going to preach in a couple weeks, so I'm not going to get too crazy into the details of um, later in the chapter. But this miracle is a sign pointing to the reality that Jesus is the bread of life. And in breaking this bread, he's pointing to the breaking of the curse. Not only of the bread, but of the curse's most heinous effects of sin and death. He says, and he who eats of that bread will never truly hunger. He'll never truly hurst thirst and never truly die. Now is that Jesus? Not just the Jesus breaking the bread as an act in and of itself, but the bread of life Jesus. Is that what the crowd saw? Let's talk about the crowd. If you look at verse 14, I know I'm skipping some. I'm going to come back to verse 12. Um, But if you look at verse 14, it says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And they were right. So that's a reference to Moses, like I said. I think we'll get more into Moses in a couple weeks when we talk about the last part of the passage. But if you go back and look, it says um, there's some interesting things to know about the uh, bread. It's barley bread. That means that um, this would have been something that was like, like wheat was kind of the bread that people that had money ate, right? Barley was for poorer people. Um, So we see this is a... Um, this is a kid coming. He has barley, he's five barley loaves and then two fish. The word for fish there is actually, it indicates that it was kind of a prepared fish. It's kind of it's pickled or had some sort of relish or some sort of preservative on it. It wasn't, you know, he didn't just pick them out of the, of the water. And so all I want to say there is that if you're an Israelite in that moment, you would have heard, um, you would have seen this happen. He said, well, when was the last time that we got prepared food straight from a miracle that the Lord did? Manna. Manna in the wilderness. And so they say, they, they see this partially, right? They see this, there's parts of this that they're getting right. It's kind of like the disciples. The disciples are, you know, they, they kind of like fumble through the New Testament. That's how they, it's kind of funny, they wrote this. And they're, you know, owning up to all of their confusions and misunderstandings of who Jesus is and what he came for. And so they kind of get it, but also, verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So they kind of half saw, they half understood. They saw the sign, but they didn't see the reality that the sign was supposed to point to. And the disciples are in a very similar boat. It's really, it's kind of funny if you read in Mark. Um, So Mark has both the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and 
it also has the story of Jesus feeding the 4,000. And, and, for, and Jesus feeding the 4,000 isn't even just 4,000 men. It's 4,000 people, so much smaller. Um, and the disciples are still like, there's 4,000 people here. What do we do? They're not understanding Jesus. And later, Jesus said, in the, in the, um, after we get uh, past the next passage, Jesus, they come to Jesus again after, he, um, after he's in the, the disciples cross the sea. Um, and he says, you guys really just want bread. You're, you're coming here just to see the signs that will do something for you. They'll fill you up. They'll provide a need for you. So they saw the sign, but they didn't see the reality that the sign points to. And I think a lot of times we can be guilty of that too. We can make Jesus, we can kind of picture Jesus in our own image, a Jesus that just kind of fits whatever prior ideas that we had. You know, a liberal Jesus, a conservative Jesus, environmentalist Jesus, vegan Jesus. Whatever you are projecting that into Jesus, but not the Jesus that came as the bread of life. Verse 12, um, so, so what do we, I, I guess I am kind of wrapping up here, and um, I want to talk about what is our call in this? How, do, how are we involved? I mean, this, like I said, it's a pretty straightforward miracle, but how, how does that involve us? Verse 12, and when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who have eaten. So all gospels that include, you know, all, all four gospels, including this story, note, they make a specific note that there were 12 leftover baskets. And I think sometimes we can, you know, do a little bit too much with numbers in the Bible, but this is a pretty big number. 12 is a pretty significant number because you had these 12 disciples taking up 12 baskets. And in the Bible, 12 is a symbol. It's, an, it's a number symbol for the church. In the Old Testament, you had God's people that were, um, they were made up of 12 tribes. And in the New Testament, we see the church being started and being, having the authority given to 12 apostles. So we, even when you look in the book of Revelation, when it includes 12, it's referring to God's people. And there's actually a passage in Revelation where there's 24 elders sitting before the throne of God, which is um, significant because it's showing that God's Old Testament people and his New Testament people are united as one, worshiping before the Father in heaven. And so when it's, it, it notes very specifically 12 baskets in each one of these Gospels saying a couple things. It's saying that, one, we play a part in this. We get to be God's body here on earth. That's what we're called, 1 Corinthians. We're called the body of Christ. We get to be the ones that are, not only does Jesus make us some sort of like passive audience to these miracles, but in including these 12 disciples and the 12 baskets, he's saying, I'm involving my church in reversing the curse and reversing the effects of the fall that have broken aspects of our humanity. The church gets to be a part of that. 
He involves the disciples in that. We get to be a part, church, of God's work of reversing the effects of the curse. That's crazy. And there's a, there's a number of ways that looks like. And I want to say, it also doesn't always look like something really crazy. It, always, it doesn't always look like this, you know, crazy, big act that the church does. I think a lot of it, talking about the small things today, a lot of it takes place in your everyday lives. Loving when you don't feel like it. Sharing the gospel when it's awkward. Caring for the poor and the sick and people who are in need. Including others when it makes more natural sense to exclude. There's lots of ways, lots of little decisions that your life can be made up of that play a part in the reversal of the curse. And as you do that, talking about the 12 leftover baskets, God will care for you. God cares for his church. He feeds us when we're hungry, when we're in need. He provides for us. And so I invite you, when the inconveniences, the frustrations, the agitations of life hit you this week, I invite you to stop, pause, take a second. Remember that God sees you, he's with you, he cares for you. And I invite you to pray, ask him to be there with you in that moment, helping you and rewiring what maybe your natural inclination would be to do, get angry, bitter, resentful, sad, and instead ask him to use whatever little moment that you're part of to be a part of his renewal of all of our creation. Let's pray. God, we know that you're not just with, there, with us there in the big things. You're with us in the small things. You're with us in the day-to-day and Lord, you are our bread of life. We ask that you would remind us of that this week. We ask that you, when we feel spiritually thirsty and hungry, that you would remind us of your gospel. You would remind us that you sent us Jesus, the bread of life, bread from heaven, to satisfy us. Help us do this this week, Lord. Remind us and encourage us. Amen.